If you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. I'll be reading Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Alex, are we okay here? All right. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And you are merciful to the unworthy. And we thus as unworthy People plead earnestly and beg of the ongoing grace to give us hearts of affection and joy and delight in the truth of Your Son and of His authority and His ability in our lives anywhere to heal, to change a situation, to raise from the dead darkened souls. May we, because of Your Word, be all the more confident, praying people to the glory of this great Savior, Jesus. Amen. The most stunning words in this text this morning are in verse 9, where Jesus says, or when Luke says of Jesus, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled 
at him. It's the word thaumazo. He was amazed at the words of the centurion. And turning to the crowd that followed him, Jesus said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Usually in the New Testament, we see other people being amazed and marveling at Jesus' words and Jesus' acts. But rarely do we see Jesus Himself being amazed at the words or acts of other people. In fact, in the Gospels, there are only two times recorded where Jesus was amazed or just marveled at something. One was when He was in His hometown in Nazareth and He was Amazed, marveled, affected by the unbelief of his town folk. And the other time he is amazed is right here at the words of this non-Jewish Gentile soldier. And because of that, in this text, I think is what we have this morning, is this model Here's another a narrative and a picture that Luke lays out for believers of what faith is. What is it to be walking in trust of God and His sovereign authority and power? And as we look at it, we will see that real faith is not what has been modeled in so many differing Christian circles. I've been exposed to over the years, like super spiritual pastors or preachers or faith healers who who somehow come off as if they're hovering above your, your average believer. This faith that's laid out here, what we see is this. It's rooted in being in touch with reality. Two realities. This faith is a mixture of two ingredients in this centurion. The reality that he recognized the authority of Jesus. Mixed with the reality not of his own worthiness to be a recipient of the grace that would flow in power from this authority of Jesus, but mixed with the reality of His unworthiness. That's what we see in this text today that causes Jesus to be, whoa, (laughs) this is great faith. So, Remember where we've been in the narrative of Luke. Jesus has gone up on the mountain. He's up by the Sea of Galilee outside Capernaum. He he chose the twelve apostles. Then they come down to a plateau on that mountain. And we have for weeks been going over Jesus' sermon on the plain. Now Luke picks up. 
chapter 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Okay. So first, the character, here we go. We got this guy who is a Roman soldier. His rank is, he's a centurion. That means two things. It means this guy was really rich financially. And it means that he had command over 100 soldiers. Century, centurion. It's essentially equivalent to the rank of captain today in our, in our army. Secondly, I don't know how many slaves he had, but there was one particular slave whom... The text says he loved. When it says highly valued, it doesn't mean as a commodity here. It doesn't mean because this is an expensive slave. It means he loved and cared about this slave. And thirdly, we see this slave is sick to the point of death. And then we pick up and read in verses 3 to 5. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, Jesus, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For He loves our nation, and He is the one who built us our synagogue. Okay. You talk about crossing cultural barriers. You've got you to feel this first century. Okay. The Roman occupying army were not the favorite people of first century Jews in Galilee or Judea. Particularly of the leadership of the Jews. And so, what we see here though, this soldier, this centurion, Gentile, rank of a captain, goes to the elders of the Jews in Capernaum and sends them to go intervene with Jesus, asking Jesus to come to His house. And like He's healing all these other people in His ministry that's getting more and more word spreading abroad, come to My house and heal My servant. Now, what we see in the story is as it unfolds, these Jews did not do this because the centurion, like He could have done, compelled them, threatened them. He had a lot of power and He could have abused it. But what we see in the story is that these Jews wanted to. They were happy to go intervene on this Gentile's behalf. Now, look how it says it. When they got there, they pleaded with Jesus earnestly. He, he's worthy. Jesus, He's worthy. Let's, I'm going to just stop for a second because this is a new term we haven't run across. I never noticed this until now. I'm in Luke slowly going through it. Wow, I never thought about that. We've seen terms like Pharisees, 
scribes, scholars, professional scholars, high priests, priesthood, etc. Right? Now you've got this term, elders. What the heck is that? Because he says, the elders of the Jews. We're not positive. It, it could mean synagogue officials. But it probably doesn't. It probably refers to the Jewish civil leaders in their community. Now, Luke uses this term a few times, so I just want to give you a real quick taste. Right here, the elders of the Jews went. But in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 32, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priest and scribes. Or in Luke chapter 20, verse 1, quote, The chief priest, okay, got the group, and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him. You go to Luke book 2, Acts of the Apostles, in chapter 4, we read, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Or, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders said to them. So there's this group in Luke's mind that is referred to as the elders, most likely leaders within the Jewish community. All right, here's the key now. Notice in the text why these Jewish leaders are so willing to stick up for this Gentile. Verses 4 to 5. He is worthy, Jesus, to have you do this for Him. Why? See the word for? This is their argument. For, because He loves our nation. And He's the one who built us our synagogue. Okay. Twofold argument. This Gentile centurion loves our nation. Now, this most likely means he was what we see in the New Testament, a technical term. He was a God-fearer. That, that is a person, a Gentile, a pagan, who has put away their paganism and has come to believe the truth, which is monotheism, that there's only one God, and that that God is the God of the Jews, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that there's a book, the Hebrew Scriptures, that they've come to embrace. And so this whole community of Judaism that's going on, that they're really positive toward it. They give money toward it, etc. But they have not gone the full route and been converted. Become a proselyte. Go through the baptismal waters and the, guys, ritual circumcision. The, so, so they haven't gone through full conversion, most likely that's where this guy is. When he, when he says, he loves our nation. And secondly, he wasn't just a donor to help build the synagogue. He did the whole darn thing. 
He purchased the whole thing. This guy's very rich. But notice how the elders then make the jump to this. Therefore, the centurion is worthy for you to show him this grace. He deserves it. It's owed to him. That was their theology. But it wasn't the stance of this Gentile centurion. These Jews were looking only at the external. They were not looking at what really counts. The internal of this soldier. They were praising Him for the kinds of works that people even today think earn them heaven. Forgiveness of sins. Grace. Look how much they have given. Help build the church. Help build the hospital. Big donor. Big name. Big plaque on the outside of the building. That idea was embedded in the first century Jewish mind. Remember in chapter 18, again, where Jesus will go on and He'll tell the story, quote, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. No, no, no. I fast twice a week. And I give 10% of all that I earn. The whole point there is that that had this smell that Jesus is saying of some kind of a smug, arrogant, prideful self-satisfaction. But, In the same parable, true, saving, justifying faith looks like this. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The position of these Jewish leaders, okay, we're in a seed for you, our centurion friend, was not helpful to him. The Bible is clear. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And those who look only at the external, he put up all the money for our synagogue. They will never get, they'll never see, they'll never hear or embrace the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So, let's go ahead now and look at the centurion's view and see why his response is the one that Jesus just praises. Whoa! Verses 6 and 7. Okay, they intercede. Jesus, 
Come. And Jesus went with them. Now, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, another group, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you either. Say the word and let my servant be healed. Okay, so here's Jesus. He's got a whole crowd with him, too. He's going with these elders, Jewish leaders of Capernaum, and they're in town and they're going towards the house. And somehow the centurion gets second thoughts and he's, Come here, guys, I got to sit, go quickly, go, go to Jesus and tell him, Just stop, don't bother coming. To my house. Why? It's right there. Just listen to the reasoning. Notice again the word for. Lord, do not trouble yourself. Okay, let's again. First, he already sent a group saying, Please come to my house. Now, sends another group. Please don't. Don't trouble yourself for, here's the reason, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume even to come to you. See, there's something more. I mean, scholars think, well, did he do that because he realized he's a Gentile, he understands Judaism enough that the Jew wasn't allowed to come in his house, that was their basic rule, though Jesus would have done it. Okay. So, but that's not it. Because he's, just, he's making more clear now. This is the reason I didn't come to you myself in the first place. I thought, <laughs> I'm worthy to go meet this guy. He had such a high view of Jesus in comparison to himself that he understood. He knew his unworthiness. This is the mixture that, of what faith is here. A grasping the reality of who you are and who he is and the authority and the ability at His will to make my dying, beloved slave get well. We, as believers, have to constantly work at seeing ourselves accurately. This guy was in touch with that reality. He was conscious of his own sin. He did not, therefore, boil everything down to his external deeds. Look at my philanthropy. I bought the whole synagogue. Once we come to grips with the reality of who we are apart from any grace of Christ,
Christ. Who we are in our sin. The darkness of our hearts, even in externally looking comparatively to others' good deeds. Once we come to grips with our own judgmentalism and selfishness and self-righteousness, we, like this guy, will be perturbed when a group goes on our behalf and says, Hey, Joe deserves this. This seems to be what's happened here. It seems to be he's got some word. The Jewish leaders have done it and Jesus is on his way. And this is what they said about you. I think this way. You've got to go. Tell him not to come. I'm not worthy. See, one of the huge maladies that we are purpose, purposefully left to in our sanctification as believers, is this malady that we just don't see ourselves very clearly. Unless we, by God's grace, are working at it. We have the tendency to see others and their sins so much easier than our own. Isn't that what Jesus just got done preaching? Take the speck out of your brother's eye. And while you're doing that, is you're blinded to this big, huge log that's in your own eye. Darkness exists even when you're in the darkness and you don't see all the yuck that's there. It is the book. It is the Word of God, of Christ, of the Gospel. That is the light that shines on the reality that's there. I'm going to quote Kent Hughes, a commentator on Luke. One big paragraph. Just listen carefully. I think he's right on at the point of what's going on in the centurion's heart and we ought to covet going on in ours. Quote, The fact is, no one is in a position to understand Christ and Christianity who is not acquainted with his own evil nature. C.S. Lewis, writing to a friend, told how the writings of the great Scottish preacher Alexander White had brought him face to face with a characteristic of Puritanism he had almost forgotten. For him, says Lewis, in other words, for White, says C.S. Lewis, the one essential symptom of the regenerate life is a permanently horrified perception of one's natural and, it seems, unalterable corruption. The true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. End of C.S. Lewis quote. Hughes goes on. Lewis understood that there is a wholesome, in fact, essential consciousness of sin. Somehow, the centurion, in a way that no one else had to this extent yet, maybe Peter, 
maybe Peter, in the boat in the Sea of Galilee. Leave me, Lord! But when you see Jesus truly, you see yourself more truly. And it gives Peter's response. It gives the centurion's response to where he's going to make sure, no, 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 no! I never said I'm worthy! Go tell him, don't bother. He doesn't need to come. I, I, don't get me wrong. I want my child servant here well. You don't have to come. And I'm not worthy you come. But I do know this. Say the word. And he'll be well. So don't miss what's going on. That unworthy Feeling is essential to faith. See, it's true that God sovereignly in grace had been working on this Gentile centurion. That's why he's a monotheist now. That's why he has come to believe in the God of the Jews. In the books of Moses. That's why this... This heart that's going on in him was owing nothing but ultimately to God's work that he loved his slave. That he purchased the whole synagogue building. He gave tons of money. So if, you're your, if he were just the average guy, he'd have a lot to boast about. So yeah, I'm worthy. Why didn't he? The answer is because he saw, as we're going to see more clearly now, he saw and he understood the implication of the authority that Jesus was carrying with himself. And somehow that reality of this is different that the stories he's hearing. Jesus is becoming more and more popular. How blind people see and the crippled walk and the demon possess. He speaks a word and demons shriek and they leave him. He knows these stories he's hearing and he has deduced something about him. And deducing what he did caused him to realize somehow the authority He has is so much more than mine or the generals over me or Caesar's. He's connected to the sovereign God of the universe. When He speaks, the universe must obey. Listen to His reasoning. Verses 7 and 8. But instead, Jesus... Just say the word and let my servant be healed. For, here's an argument again, for I too, I also am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. You better believe it. He goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. 
and he does it. So, see what he's saying? He's saying, Jesus, I get it. I understand authority. I understand the chain of command and how it works. And so I know that it's not necessary for you to come all the way to my house and to get into the room with my servant for him to be healed. This, is, this stuns Jesus. He just, all you have to do is will it, say it. See, the crowds for months and months and months have been amazed at Jesus' words and his power. His authority, His healing ministry. It was extraordinary. But nobody up to this point had been able to penetrate to the depth of that authority like the centurion did. He understood that there was a chain of command. There was, there was an authority over Jesus. But whoa, it goes way to the top. And thus he has authority radically over disease. That at his word. You think a general's got authority? You better do it. You think the centurion's got authority over the hunter? Better do it. He's got authority over demons, over fevers, over legs and paralysis. Speak the word. So the Gentile got it. And Jesus marveled at such faith. When Jesus heard these things, He marveled. He, he was blown away. That's what it really means. He's amazed. And turning to the crowd that followed Him, He said... Now, just get the picture. Luke didn't have to say it that way. But Luke's got... He wants us to see it. There's a big crowd following Him. Second group comes up. You don't need to come. They give the argument of the centurion. This is why all you got to do is say it. And Luke says, He turned to the crowd that followed Him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel. Got to get it. This guy's a Gentile. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. In other words, as he turns to the crowd, he's saying, did you hear what I heard? Wow! I've been looking for such faith, and now I finally found it. Learn from this Gentile, Israel. Yeah, okay, let's just probe it more. What is it that he's really, really going on here? What is it that thrills Jesus so much in what he hears that he's essentially saying, this is what you are to get, like this guy got. Now, it can't merely be that the centurion believed in miracles or healing power because that is been going on with thousands now in the region of Galilee. 
They're coming and flocking to Him, hearing the testimonies, and they're seeing this stuff before their eyes. It has to be what was different. He recognized that that power over illness or anything else was irrelevant to His presence being there. That He had that power without having to come and be in the the vicinity of the house or the room or to even touch you. That, that just seems to be the difference in what blew his mind. And that the guy was right. You could be on the moon, Jesus. And all you got to do is say the word. The centurion sees that God's power and His authority to operate that was entrusted to Jesus was without any spatial limitation. Now I say entrusted because look at the argument. Verse 8. I get it, Jesus, because I also am under authority. He said, the only reason I, as a centurion, have authority over a hundred soldiers is because it's given to me of those who are over me in authority. Like you! And he didn't argue with him. This, he realized, something about this man and this ministry proved to the centurion this guy somehow is directly connected to the sovereign creator of the universe and he's under him and authority has been invested in him. Therefore, I get it, Jesus. Speak the word. And so together what Jesus sees in this guy is this, it's this personal recognition that he has of his own heart, his own unworthiness, his own place mixed with this deep, penetrating understanding of the reality of Jesus' authority given to him by God and the power to carry out whatever he speaks. And therefore, the implication of Jesus in the text turning to the crowd is saying, Will you trust like the centurion trusts, believes in me? The implication for readers of Luke's Gospel, which 30 years later, after this fact, Luke is gathering all this information, and now in the narrative, he lets us know what happened. And, he, and he's got mainly Gentiles in mind. The implication is, as you read this all these years later, after Jesus' crucifixion and death in His mortality, in His resurrection, and He's left us in His physicality, you in Corinth, He doesn't have to be there like He was in Palestine to heal you, to answer your prayer, for Him to just will speak the word or you in Los Angeles 2,000 years later. He has all authority in heaven and on earth to will. And it will be. And so we read in verse 10, 
And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Our saving faith. In other words, our, if you've come alive to Christ, faith is real. And our ongoing walk of faith, it is a constant exercise in reality. In the reality of who you are and what you don't deserve. Of your unworthiness mixed with the reality of who He is and His authority and His power. Faith, therefore, is at root seeing ourselves accurately. Especially 30 years down the road of your Christianity. When you might have gotten a little bit better in areas. Don't cease to see your heart and yourself apart from the grace of God. Fear this. Fear approaching yourself with, with an opinion of yourself that matches the opinion of those Jewish leaders concerning centurion. He's worthy. Look what he's done. Do you inwardly think that because you really love your family, You love your church. You are used by God and His grace to serve and minister to others. You give generously that therefore it sneaks into your mind down the road, but I'm worthy to not have bad happen in my life down here. I'm worthy that that things should really kind of unfold this way. If so, to that extent, we're not seeing reality. The reality that apart from the undeserved favor of God in everything of our lives, we have nothing. We, we, we have absolutely nothing apart from His grace that we deserve. Whether that means a, a lucid mind that thinks clearly, <laughs> you'll take, He can take it in a second. It would not be unjust. Whether it's a, a business acumen to learn and know how very easily to make money in our culture. Whether it's a soft, tender heart to reach the hurting and people and minister. Oh, and God wants to continue to do that through you. 
whether it's the food on your table, the house you live in, the car you drive, none of that is because any of us have deserved any of it. But as the centurion, you know, apart from you, I am absolutely unworthy. Jesus was amazed. He recommended that approach. That approach to what? To praying. Come. Heal. You don't even need to come. Just do it. Biblical faith from the very beginning of your Christian life to the end of your life is an exercise in getting real. With yourself on the one hand and with who Jesus is in the gospel on the other. And it's probably better to say it the other way. With the gospel, because that's the key to getting real with ourselves. By getting understanding and probing the depths of the gospel. What we see in this text is Jesus was thrilled. He is pleased with the centurion and he's so pleased with all his children when those two things come together like they do in the text. The centurion loves his slave and he realizes his insufficiency to do anything about it. He's going to lose him to death and he doesn't want that. He is insufficient and therefore he is pleading for help to Christ's all-sufficiency. Those two things in the, are the essence of faith in the Christian life. Walking in your insufficiency and trusting in Jesus' all-sufficiency. He's thrilled. He gets amazed. He likes it when we ask of Him. What? Anything. Glorify your name in this or that or the other thing. He loves it when, like the centurion, we know that if you just will it, and this is how we can pray. No one's looking. You're all alone on a Tuesday morning. You can. I'm not sure if you're going to will that or not, but you know what? I'm going to ask it. And I know. It looks impossible here. That illness looks impossible. That financial situation looks impossible. That relationship problem looks impossible. My own heart and its ugliness looks impossible. But Lord, I know that if you just will, you can do a miracle right there. Jesus loves that. Lord, praying for this person again. They don't know you. The heart is so darkened. From down here, horizontally, that that person would ever come to faith in you looks impossible. The centurion knows this. 
Jesus, if you just say the word, that person's eyes will be open. They will embrace you, see the gospel as they've never seen before. He loves to be asked to intervene by humble, insufficient, undeserving, faith-filled children of God who have been purchased by His blood. Those who believe that He has absolute sovereign authority over everything in the universe. Those are the persons, according to this text, who reason well. That's what's stunning about the text. Jesus calls it faith. And this guy's faith that he praises was directly connected to his reasoning. I get it. Here's the reason. You're under authority. I'm under authority. You got all kinds of things under your authority. I got some under mine. All you got to do is say it. He thought. He reasoned. And he had a heart of humility. So, as we are passing out the cup and the bread, what we are doing as a church, as a community of believers in eating His body, drinking His blood. We are signifying His sacrificial substitutionary death until He comes. This act is the very foundational expression of the faith that we're seeing in this text. You don't truly drink and eat of His blood and body unless you realize I am radically unworthy. I am only trusting in being purchased. I'm only trusting in You <coughs> through the cross having removed my sin that put a, an infinite barrier between me and God's love and kindness and goodness. Let's pray. So Father, would You, as we prepare our hearts, work so particularly as you so often do, meeting the needs of where we need flashlights shined, of where we need that deep confidence in the reality that Christ is sufficient even in what we see of our hearts. To the glory of your name.